All right. Welcome, listeners, to episode 54 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sitman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here with my great friend, Sam Adler-Bell. Hello, Matt. We have a great episode to uh, introduce today, don't we, Sam? We do. I've been wanting to have this person on the podcast for a long time. It's Gabriel Winant. Gabe, to those of us who know and love him. Um, he's an uh, assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago. You've hopefully read his essays, excellent, incisive political essays in The Nation, New Republic, Dissent, N Plus One. And we had him on to talk a little bit about his book and a little bit about a topic that I think a lot of listeners have wanted us to address, which is the new kind of right-wing curiosity about the labor movement and even sympathy towards uh, a certain idea of the working class. Um, and Gabe was the perfect person to talk about that with because yes. he's really like the smartest Marxist <laughs> I know <laughs> um, and also the most uh, easy to understand Marxist <laughs> and yes. um, was just really, really great at sort of walking us through the problems with the rights thinking about class and labor history. Yes. As Sam mentioned, uh, we begin the conversation by talking about his phenomenal book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Manufacturing and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America, which is uh, focused on Pittsburgh, the great steel town. But that's not where we end it. As Sam mentioned, we get to, from a left perspective, from even a Marxist perspective, what are some of the problems with the way the labor curious right is approaching these questions? And we pick up some specific examples, and Gabe was just great to talk to about that. Yeah. If you're wondering how seriously to take the conservative populists claims to being the new working class movement, the new working class party, that is what we are going to discuss with Gabe. Well, uh, before we get to it, we should handle a few housekeeping items. As always, we're grateful to our partners at Descent uh, for sponsoring the podcast. And one of the things they do is if you subscribe to Know Your Enemy on patreon.com slash knowyourenemy for $10 a month or more, you get a free digital subscription. And of course, for $5 a month, you can have access to all of our bonus episodes. Yes. And as always, we want to thank our intrepid producer, Jesse Brenneman and Will Epstein, who does the music for the podcast and uh, rate and review us on iTunes and tweet about us and just make us feel good about ourselves whenever you can <laughs> at every turn. Here's our episode with Gabe Winan. Enjoy. All right, gentlemen, let's get started. Gabe Winant, welcome to Know Your Enemy. Thanks for having me. Longtime fan, first time caller. Gabe, you are one of my very favorite podcast guests. Like You're on a very short list of people who, when I see that they've appeared on really any podcast, I will listen to it. Well, it's my highest aspiration in life, you know, is to is to master the podcast circuit. None of this well-regarded historian and essayist bullshit. You just want to be the left's top podcast guest. That's right. <laughs> well, we're really grateful you agreed to come on Know Your Enemy. We're going to talk about your great book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. Came out last year from Harvard University Press. But we want to go beyond that, too, to talk more broadly about labor politics, unions, the working class, and especially how 
the right, especially the new populist right, if we can call them that, the, the national conservatives, the people at Compact Magazine, American Compass, American Affairs, there's kind of this new interest in and appreciation of and even supposedly favor towards labor unions and the working class. We've heard a lot about the Republican Party. They're a workers' party now, as the refrain goes on Twitter. So we're really excited for that conversation. Me too. Great. Well, we should just dive right in. Uh, We're going to start by talking about your book, as I mentioned, The Next Shift. And I just wanted to start on something of a personal note. You know, one of the things I wrote that kind of ended up giving rise to this podcast was my essay in 2016 for Dissent, Leaving Conservatism Behind. In the first paragraph of that piece, I described the way I would sometimes be driving with my father in a car and we'd pass the factory where he worked for a few decades uh, until I was about 10 years old when he, he quit that job to start his own business. What I mentioned is that when we would drive past it, I could just feel my father's kind of dread and loathing of that place. He was he worked for PPG, Pittsburgh Plate and Glass, and this was in Altoona, uh, about two hours away from Pittsburgh. But his hatred of that job, the way he would tell me to never work in a place like that, your book, I thought, really, because it, it captures the life world of the working class around Pittsburgh, I felt like it helped me understand my own upbringing better in some ways. Like I remember my dad working third trick, the kind of night shift and sleeping during the day and my mother telling my sister and I to be quiet. And those are the kinds of anecdotes that are all through your book. And that kind of leads me to the first question, which is uh, why Pittsburgh? It's moving to hear that. I appreciate you saying all of that, Matt. You know, I'm not from uh, I'm not from Pittsburgh. People often assume I am. I'm from Philadelphia, but I had actually never been to Western Pennsylvania before I chose it as the region I was going to use as a case study. Initially, I thought maybe I would write a book about the Rust Belt as a whole or something like that, and that I realized that was not going to be compatible with the kind of granular study of everyday life of the kind that you were just describing. So I had to choose a place, and I chose Pittsburgh because. It has so often stood in, along with Detroit, maybe, for a certain kind of epoch of the history of American industrial capitalism and the kind of class formations that arose alongside that economic history. You know, the period from, let's say, 1870 to 1980, defined by the extraction of minerals and their smelting into metal and then the shaping of that metal into saleable products. You know, around that process, the entire kind of Great Lakes industrial belt was built. And Pittsburgh, you know, was this very specialized steel town, right? A huge concentration of industrial capital in steel, as well as sort of adjacent industries, of which plate glass is one. That's a relatively similar process to steel making. And for that reason, people have often kind of used it as a stand-in. It's, you know, a place where you can kind of go to study the problems of industrial capitalism Famously, for example, the Russell Sage Foundation in the in the progressive era um, did the, what's called the Pittsburgh Survey, which was a kind of elaborate study of housing and working conditions and industrial accidents and things like this. And so I figured if I wanted to try to get a hold of the kind of specificities of the world of the working class in that period of economic history and its historical legacies to our own period, that would be a pretty good stand-in. Well, Gabe, we're not going to ask you to summarize your book, but for listeners who aren't familiar with it, as you said, it's, it takes place in, in Pittsburgh. It's set in Pittsburgh, the decline of the steel industry, especially, and you know what that meant for 
really the city as a whole, the broader economy, but especially the working class people of, of both white and black of Pittsburgh. And I just wondered for our listeners, if you could kind of share the perspective that you were coming from, what you were trying to do, the kind of main lineaments of your argument, because it really picks up you know, in the early 20th century, the Great Depression, the New Deal, and the kind of labor regime that came out of that. And traces, you know, kind of the the paradoxical nature of that arrangement, its fissures, its complexities, its contradictions even. So, you know, what makes your account distinctive? What were you trying to do in explaining the story, a story that we all kind of have, I think, a half-formed, semi-mythological version of in our heads of, you know, why manufacturing decline, why the jobs, the, the single-salary breadwinner jobs associated uh, with industry in mid-century America. How are you trying to tell the story such that it's different than maybe the standard version some of us have in our heads? Yeah, well, I'm glad you kind of allude to that sort of semi-mythologized version because that was really the thing that I wanted to try to kind of grapple with and take apart and rework. You know, it seemed to me like we have this problem and we have it less now than we did 10 years ago when I started the book, but I think we still have it. And we always sort of have it in some ways as people who are interested in doing class analysis, understanding social, economic inequality in class terms in capitalist society. We have this problem that we have a set of associations between a kind of concept of class and any particular lived instantiation of what, what the working class actually might be. Because there's this period of history, starting with the second industrial revolution in the late 19th century and going through the middle of the 20th century, in which class analysis was invented. And the kind of main example of it was at hand, right, in the form of the industrial working class that mined coal and made steel and turned that steel into automobiles and worked the railroads to ship those things. And so there was a ton of slippage conceptually between the concept and the example. And the example became the concept at some level, I think. The concept is still the example for the people we're going to talk about later on the right. But right. go ahead, just to foreshadow <laughs> um, a little bit. Yeah. And that then became a big problem when the example went away, right? When deindustrialization wiped out the industrial working class in the global north, and in fact, you know, even had a kind of global dimension, that threw the concept into crisis. And the whole kind of method of materialist class analysis seemed to become discredited in the 80s and 90s. You know, there's a kind of very well-known kind of crisis of Marxism that's associated with the collapse of the labor movement in the West and the socialist states in the East. And it seemed to me that that then left us disarmed, conceptually disarmed for the kind of rise of neoliberalism, increasing social inequality and all of the crises of our moment. And so I wanted to try to do some work to figure out how a good historical account might separate the concept and the example such that we could kind of see the churn of what I think of as sort of different class formations which have different historical characteristics and different specificities and different contradictions within them that have to be understood in a specificity. And, you know, I, I figured if I could then trace this kind of classical instance of the industrial working class through its decline, showing all of the complexities and tensions of how it was made up, you know, I could show it, look, this is a specific historical thing. This isn't the abstraction working class and the process of its decline or, you know, it's kind of being crushed then also gives rise to a new historically specific kind of formation of, you know, working class experience and identity and potentially power. And so I, you know, I, th that's the historian in me. I, I, I wanted to show 
the concept never exists in the abstract. It always exists in these kind of particular instantiations that are mediated by institutions and by things like race and gender and so on. I just have to say, as a reader, I mean, I absolutely love this book. It was the kind of book where every time you turn the page, there's some insight or observation that is an aha moment, a light bulb goes off for you. And I, I think something, a line you just used, kind of tracing the process, understanding the process. It's not just like, oh, one day people woke up and decided to offshore all of our manufacturing jobs and sell out workers. I think for our listeners, one thing I want you to say more about was I, I mentioned the subtitle of your book, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. What's the, the kind of brief way that industry at the start of the subtitle and its healthcare at the other, why were those two things linked, especially in these kind of Rust Belt places like Pittsburgh? So this is the kind of substantive historical claim of the book. The rise of industrial unionism during the New Deal is connected in fundamental ways to the construction of the welfare state, also by the New Deal, or it's a part of the construction of the welfare state, social security, things like that. And the regulation of labor markets largely gets delegated to the private sector, right? So basically the federal government says we're going to impose some rules under the National Labor Relations Act under which workers and employers kind of deal with each other. And then under those rules, kind of under our supervision, they will strike up private sector agreements. But what exactly those agreements are supposed to encompass then becomes a kind of further subject of struggle. And initially, uh, the industrial union movement was, you know, the main social basis demanding what we would now call Medicare for all, which Truman tries to accomplish. and, And it's one of his major defeats. In the wake of that failure, you know, the context of the early Cold War and McCarthyism, the industrial unions realize that their political power is waning. They still have a lot of economic power that can grind their industries to a halt, but their, their, their political power is shrinking. And so they pivot to try to win what are called fringe benefits, that's to say healthcare and retirement, through collective bargaining rather than through political power. And they succeed in doing that. And over the course of the 50s and 60s and 70s, they construct these kind of islands, very large islands of economic security around workers and their, their, their dependents, their family members. The health insurance that they, that for example, steel workers win, is just, it's unbelievable from a modern perspective. You know, <laughs> yeah. They make no contribution to their premium by the 60s. It, it's extremely good insurance. So then that system intersects with a kind of gradual decline of employment in manufacturing. And I think this is important to understand. We think of deindustrialization often as a kind of snap in the 80s, when there is a kind of shock at the beginning of that decade. But a lot of the damage has already been done through the kind of gradual corrosion of industrial employment all across the 50s, 60s, and 70s. There's a steady downward trend culminating in the deep decline of the early 80s. And that downward trend produces a population that's older and sicker and increasingly poorer And that demographic and sort of socioeconomic transformation pushes working class economic insecurity into the healthcare system. It turns it into an epidemiology to a significant extent, both because people are actually getting sicker and older, and also because the healthcare system is this very weird nexus of public and private, as we all know, right, and links working class sort of social and physical well-being to private profit in this distinctive way that gives it the capacity to expand when very few things have that capacity in response to demand. And so therefore, you know, if you're a working class family in Pittsburgh, to the extent that you can turn any of your socioeconomic distress into a health problem, 
and probably it will have some aspect of it, which is kind of a health problem, then you're going to be able to access some support and, you know, income that way. But the income is earmarked, right? You can only spend it in the healthcare system. So the healthcare system expands really rapidly over the course of the 70s and, and into the 80s under this stimulus, while everything else is sort of shrinking and collapsing all around it. And, you know, for a long time, it has functions that we would think of as sort of social work functions and even kind of long-term care type functions are sort of happening even within hospitals. Hospital stays were much longer than they are now. As it expands, it also begins to hire people, right? Because healthcare is like, it's a labor-intensive business. It needs staff. And so it hires basically the daughters and wives of displaced steel workers or women who in a previous generation would have been the wives of steel workers. But that declining employment relationship is now freeing up women for availability in the labor market especially women of color, right? Black women in Pittsburgh are disproportionately represented in healthcare, especially at the bottom of that industry. African-Americans got displaced out of steelwork earlier and more intensely. So African-American women that have to make this transition sooner. But basically the industry grows and grows and grows over the entire final third of the 20th century to the point that it is now, you know, by far the largest sector of employment in Pittsburgh and in the country, in fact. Healthcare is about one in seven jobs nationwide. It's about one in six jobs in Pittsburgh. It's like over one in five in some other Rust Belt cities. Like uh, I think in Rochester, it's like 22%. Because as the book argues, it became, along with the prison system, one of our main ways of kind of processing the social dislocation of deindustrialization. And in, in doing that, it then kind of proletarianized in a new way, working class women. Yes, It's worth saying that you begin your book by describing in 2013, UPMC, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, argued to federal regulators that they had no employees, (laughs) which is to say these care workers were not considered employees in a labor law sense. They were not under the protection of unions or even certain labor regulations. What was so fascinating about the book is you show the historical roots of that, that there was always an inside and an outside. There were people on in these islands, on these islands of relative security, the great benefits, uh, the union jobs, in other words, and the people outside of it. Yeah. And I think what's important to understand about that is that the inside and the outside aren't separate from each other. There's like a bridge to the island, let's say, and the people who have to commute over that bridge are the outsiders, right? So again, if you think about, well, what does health insurance buy you, actually? What it buys you is time in the hospital. And what time in the hospital consists of, if you break it down into actual like costs, what, what are the costs that your insurance is paying for? More than anything else, it's labor. That was even more true earlier in the 20th century when hospitals had more of this kind of social work and long-term care type function which they eventually outsourced to home care and to nursing homes. But even now, it remains true that about half of hospital expenditure is labor costs. So in that sense, right, the insiders aren't just kind of doing better than the outsiders. There's a kind of relationship between the steel worker and the nurse's aide who has to take care of him. And that's, that relationship is mediated by who has access to these good benefits. One of the things your book did so well was show the way both gender and racial hierarchies interacted with the system in the inside and the outside. The way your book traces those connections and the kind of long-term consequences of them, things like the segregation of neighborhoods and attempts at desegregation, your racial conflict in that urban context while deindustrialization is happening, just the fault lines 
of those conflicts and how they came into being. The way you traced that was just so superb. And so for listeners, I just want to say this was a great example of a lot of terms we use sometimes that get thrown around. And uh, it was just very illuminating in that sense, too. Yeah. I mean, to put even just a finer point on it, it's kind of like this is the value of doing actual materialist history (laughs) is that you can see that material realities shape these things, which in many sort of more blasé contexts, either liberals or conservatives will throw around terms about race and gender and the divisions between people and oppressive systems, which then become so abstracted or become sort of essentialized that uh, you lose sight of the fact that like, no, 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 this story that you're telling, which is about the movement of people and goods and (laughs) their concentration in a particular place in a certain time and the legal and political regimes that sort of mediate those interactions, there's a material story in which terms like race, gender, and others have meaning, which are just never lost in your book, if that makes sense, Gabe. Yeah, I mean, that was very important to me in trying to carry out this analysis, you know, because it seemed to me that the analytical separation of class from race and gender and sexuality and other similar categories, which are often written off as, let's say, merely cultural. It's not good even for class analysis, right? Because what that then means is that there's a ton of stuff that you're saying, well, I can't explain that, right? (laughs) And you have to kind of do this move of then uh, saying, well, that's all kind of false consciousness in one form or another, right? That's all people engaging in a mistake, Yeah. Stop thinking of yourself as a woman and start thinking of yourself as a worker. Stop thinking of yourself as a black person and start thinking of yourself as a steel worker. Right. But like there, these people are who seem to be, seem to be engaging in that. Right. And if you want to actually understand it properly, you then have the options to abandon class analysis, right. And say, well, okay, you know, society is a kind of complex patchwork of all different kinds of identities and ideologies, none of which, you know, bears any kind of analytical um, priority over another. And that would be a kind of liberal move, right? Yes. Or you could say gender and race and sexuality must have something to do with the kind of material organization of society at a deeper level than merely being ideological, right? They have to be part of the base in some way, if you want to use a base and superstructure kind of Marxist model, like how society is organized. And so part of what my book is trying to do is to try to explore how gender and race are part of how class structure actually works and how it's organized. Would you just give an example from the book of what you just described? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, to kind of build on what we were already talking about, healthcare is not covered by labor law until the 1970s. So the whole period during which the the modern healthcare system is built, right, when third-party insurance is established, when all the hospitals are modernized in the 50s, when Medicare and Medicaid are established in 65, So that whole period when the modern system is constructed, healthcare workers are not considered employees and they do not have access to the National Labor Relations Board. They're not covered by minimum wage law until the end of the 60s. So what that means is that the people who, in fact, are employed in that system, they are obviously going to be drawn, recruited from the most marginal parts of the labor market. Right. And there's a kind of economic dimension of this because like, it's not a super profitable industry for much of this period, any of this period. And so it kind of structurally can't give high wages and, you know, is, is going to seek out these kind of most marginal layers of the labor market. So what that means is that women and in Pittsburgh, African-Americans are drawn into this work. In Pittsburgh, their effort to then unionize is kind of crushed in the late 60s, early 70s because of their 
you know, their lack of access to, to legal protection. And, you know, I mean, down to the present, it remains the case that healthcare work, and in general, what we could think of as like the care economy, so including childcare, domestic work, forms of food service, and so on, the workforce overwhelmingly consists of women, of people of color. Immigrants. Immigrants, right. And, you know, it just accounts for a huge portion of kind of the increase of low-wage work in our society over the past several decades. So it's like if you if you look out onto society without an account of that sort of material process and the reasons that, you know, certain marginalized segments of the workforce ended up being attracted to or pulled into this kind of work, which had fewer legal protections, you would look out on society and go, wow, there's a lot of black nurses. And <laughs> you'd, you'd have no sense of why that might be the case. Your the resources through which to make sense of this sort of identity reality that's a, that's, that, that, that faces you would be so impoverished if you do not know that there's a historical material <laughs> trajectory that, which results in this reality that we look out onto. And I could say, I, I would say that this is maybe a good way to, to pivot. Yes. If we're, we're treating Gabe's approach to labor history as a sort of ideal model, <laughs> we're going to turn to a bunch of degenerate models of thinking about it, which are very popular with a lot of our new right populist thinkers and writers and even self-understood historians. This is exactly where the problem of an idealized concept of what class is, an abstract concept which has a particular historical example in mind, causes blatant misapprehensions and tendentious reasoning resulting in reactionary uh, conclusions. Because basically, a lot of these people on the right who are sort of newly curious about the labor movement and have a nostalgia for the sort of Fordist family wage era, the height of industrial production in America, when you say working class to them, that is a white man and no one else. And it's one of the simplest ways that we talk about on the podcast that these people are lying to themselves or lying to the public or lying to their readers, which is that when they summon an idea of a working class, they just do not include women and people of color and uh, immigrants and other sort of these, these marginal workers in their image, in this sort of fantasy. And that causes all kinds of problems. And, uh, you know, that's just kind of how you can always know that, you know, you're being sold some some reactionary bullshit because, you know, those figures about how dominant the care economy and healthcare in particular is in the world of the working class today, you will never read, basically, you will never read these newly labor curious conservatives talking about care work ever. <laughs> and um, to help us anchor this pivot to the critical part of the podcast, um, <laughs> a really, really insipid, but perhaps symptomatic example of, of these misapprehensions was a review of your book that was published in Chronicles magazine, the headline of which is Labor Betrayed by the Progressive Left. It's written by somebody named Alexander Riley, who it appears is a professor of sociology at Bucknell, so Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> and basically what he does is seemingly read your book with his eyes half closed, trying to sniff out the odor of woke identity politics around every corner. It's almost too stupid to be <laughs> that useful, uh, Gabe, and I'm excited to sort of, you know, hear your, your reaction to reading this for the first time. But basically, his take is this woke progressive historian, Gabriel Winant, for him, this is a story about how steelworkers had it bad, but women and immigrants have it worse. 
And this is just a morality tale about the evil capitalists. And even if Gabe shows some sympathy towards the working class of the mid-century, he actually thinks they're also part of the enemy because they're patriarchs and racists. And um, really, he only really cares about these poor marginal women and people of color who replaced them. <laughs> That's his interpretation of the book, in which you know it's incredible that he was able to read the book and with a straight face, write about it in that way. But that misapprehension is precisely the one that we're that we're trying to drill down into here. And just, uh, Gabe, before you hop in, I wanted to say for listeners, Chronicles is a kind of paleocon publication. It formerly was published by the Rockford Institute, but in 2019, the Rockford Institute merged with, wait for this, the Charlemagne Institute. <laughs> so that's the publisher of this magazine that published this review. And you can see, too, why the author's fixation on immigration is the real cause of the decline of kind of these good-paying manufacturing jobs. Is Without that context, I feel like that move doesn't make as much sense. I mean, to just to read just from it for a second, so the listeners has a sense of what, what this sounds like. Here's the quote. The story of Steele's disappearance is complicated and fascinating, but Winant seems interested in it only in a perfunctory way, which is an extraordinary claim given what we, how we've just described the book. Yeah, but yeah. other things are of much greater concern to him. The only real change Winant notes in the move from Steele to healthcare, other than in the specifics of the work the laborers are doing, is that the exploitation has gotten still more nefarious and morally condemnable. Why? Because now the exploited laborers are significantly female and non-white. This just kind of made me laugh Yeah, for a bunch of reasons. I mean, one, as I say in the book, Pittsburgh is kind of notoriously not a destination city for immigrants. It's like the only major city in America where I spend any time that has virtually like no, statistically like no Latinx population of any kind, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's tiny. And that has to do with the history of the steel industry and the kind of demography of employment in the steel industry. But like that claim on which the review concludes can't apply in this location. <laughs> right. Let me just read it, Gabe. The, the very last paragraph begins this way. The story of the dispossession of American labor at the hands of a globalist, open immigration coalition of politicians and employers who are happy to play along with a left-wing political narrative, so long as it increases their bottom line, is of obvious interest to nationalist conservatives. The ideological blinders of the next shift unfortunately prevent it from shedding light on the topic's most important questions. <laughs> but that, yeah. the, the globalist name check there was uh, telling, I thought. Yes. yes. I read this and I felt like, oh, this, this, what this is saying is like, get out of here, little Jewish guy. This is none of your business. <laughs> I wondered why, Gabe, every time they mentioned your name, it was the three um, parentheses around it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it is true. It also begins with sort of a description which might have well be a bunch of Jews came into the academy and made it too radical. <laughs> like in his sort of situating your your work in the sort of history of radical labor history. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, it is a very Jewish field, in fact. It and it's not, not presently as much as it used to be, but like in its kind of modern emergence in the 70s, and uh, it, it certainly was. And it, he, he's aware of that. I, I do think there's a way to get into the basic, the sort of fundamental misapprehensions of the way that the new right is approaching labor history in thinking about the wrong way, the sort of tendentious way in which this review metabolized the story that you were telling. You know, I think to pick up from the, the last quote that you read, right, there's a kind of invocation of a now familiar concept of like woke capitalism or whatever. And this is a concept that is obviously now in wide circulation. You see it quite often from the kind of nationalist right. But the thing that always strikes me about it is that it contains an argument that forms of, let's say, 
social and cultural liberation around gender and race and so on, and sexuality, which are cast under, under the name woke, are in some way compatible with or even kind of augmenting of the interests of capital. And I think this is really the place to start, start this conversation because from a, like a Marxist perspective, from where I'm coming from, nothing is perfectly compatible with capital because capital is not compatible with itself, right? Capital is like not one thing, but many things, right? Because there's many different capitals and they're in competition with one another and they are organized into blocks within nations and across national lines. And they're trying to kind of pursue their interests in all different kinds of contradictory ways. And the contradictions and tensions that result from that ramify outward through the state and through policy and through institutions and through everyday life in a whole host of ways. So that like, sure, we can identify a phenomenon that these people would describe as woke capitalism or whatever, but it's not like the coherent collective interest of capital being expressed in this kind of negotiated alliance with cultural liberalism or something like that. And if you see it that way, then what you're necessarily saying is that capital itself is not contradictory. And I think this is the key distinction that I would draw between Marxism and all of these kind of forms of right-wing nationalism and populism. They imagine the possibility of a non-contradictory capitalism and a non-contradictory relationship between capital and labor, such that if you encase that relationship within the proper national institutions, it would function smoothly and it would not generate social dislocation. Again, from a kind of historical materialist perspective, that's preposterous. But I think that's the place to begin this discussion. That's really fascinating. What would you say then, when that move is made, viewing capital itself as non-contradictory and you know, positing a, a non-contradictory relationship between capital and cultural liberalism, whatever you want to call it, if that's the move you make right out of the gate, what do you think are the consequences of that? Well, I think one important consequence of that, and I will, you know, I will die on this hill every time in this discussion, um, <laughs> is the moderation of the anti-capitalist critique. I think this is really important, and it's quite funny when you really think about it, because there's a radical posture to a lot of this, right? A kind of like, bad boy, we're the only people who will say, you know, say the radical truth that we all really know. But if you pay attention to any of the versions, I mean any of them, of kind of right-wing pro-labor, supposed pro-labor arguments that are out there, they always stop short, actually, of where Marxists would go. They're always both announce some kind of support for what they imagine to be a pro-labor policy and then imply or even outright state what the limits on labor's power would be. So if you think about Orrin Cass, for example, whose um, organization American yes. Compass is the kind of main... Actual wonkish like iteration of this, of this tendency. Yeah, and kind of more respectable version. He used to work for uh, Mitt Romney. If you think about him, you know, he has a kind of a vision of what a kind of more pro-worker set of policies for labor market regulation might be, but those policies, what they look like is kind of the corporatism of European Christian democracy, basically. So, you know, there's sort of structured ways for workers to have voice in government, but that voice in government doesn't necessarily arise out of collective organization, self-organization and conflict in the workplace. And that's, I think, a good example. I mean, uh, another one, I know you guys talked about this with John Gans a few weeks ago, but another one would be the piece that Saurabh Amari wrote in, in the kind of launching of Compact about labor policy, which, you know, on its face is sort of, you know, fine, um, right? It was a, basically an argument that, you know, there's been an employer offensive since the 1970s and 1980s, 
and you know the power of labor law to protect workers has been gutted. That's all true. But I think it's worth situating that within a wider debate on the left about why that's happened and how that's worked. Because the people who he's citing are kind of like left liberal policy wonk type people who are kind of making the case for labor reform, you know, pass the PRO Act, that kind of thing. In an argument, they're in an argument with people like me, basically, who would say, you know, the PRO Act is important and the policy matters and we should pass it. But actually, capital's advantage over labor over the last several decades has structural economic roots that you would have to uproot in a more fundamental way if you wanted to change the dynamic of rising inequality, right? That is rooted in the kind of class relation that is larger than the political institutions that mediate it. Right. And so it sounds very interesting that Amari, who is someone who is always presenting himself as an anti-liberal, is taking actually there the liberal position that policy reform will do the job. Right. And some version of that is always characteristic of these guys. And let me just finish this answer by saying why I think that is. If you're interested in the empowerment of labor vis-a-vis capital, you have sort of two options of what you think that can look like, right? You can think it should be incremental, it should happen some, but that there should be checks on it because that will redistribute income and power to some extent while keeping the larger institutions of society in some form intact. Or you can think, like me, that that should be basically an unchecked process, right? That there, there, there is no correct limit to the extent of, that the working class should be empowered. But what that then implies is that all the other institutions of society also have to be transformed. Mm. That you can't imagine a world where the working class is emancipated as a class in Marxist terms, and yet like the family and the state and neighborhoods and schools look like they do now. And so in that sense, these people are incrementalists. They are moderates on the, on the class question, but they will not admit it. I think, too, in reference to the Amari piece, some listeners might have heard our bonus episode where we mentioned this, but uh, Amari is mostly drawing from the Economic Policy Institute's uh, Lawrence Mitchell, uh, who he describes as perhaps the premier progressive labor economist today. Larry's good. The research is good. You know, I'm not, I'm not knocking that. No, no, no. I agree. This is a credit to Sorab for drawing on it. But I think you can kind of see, too, where he kind of goes. It's It then kind of just becomes a problem of, like, political will. Like, the wrong elites were in power who sold you out, yeah. and we won't. So by making it a kind of narrowly a political problem, a policy problem that, as you're describing, Gabe, I think that's something to it. It always cashes out with, you know, these elites have sold us out. And in a way, when you squint, that's kind of the connection between Amari's piece and the Chronicles piece we mentioned earlier. They both end up saying, right, globalist elites sold you out. It doesn't often go much further than that. Right. It's a conception of politics, actually, as a struggle between rival elites. Yeah. And yes. what that means is that there's not actually really an idea here of working class power, of working class collective agency, of something that might happen among working class people themselves, which would enable them to transform society themselves, right? It's a kind of yes. paternalistic, ultimately, account, although they would never describe it this way, which goes way back in the history of the right, I mean, to the 19th century and before. Right. And just to kind of loop in one more conservative magazine journal, it was fascinating that Julius Krein, uh, back in uh, 2019, wrote a piece for American Affairs one of the journals of this kind of new populist right called The Real Class War, which posits that it's really the 0.01% and the top 10% who are in conflict. 
<laughs> I mean, I think of American Affairs as really like the preeminent journal of James Burnhamite thought in America today. I mean, they practically every single critique reduces to a version of Burnham's idea of managerialism and his sort of concept of basically replacing the Marxist class dialectic with a sort of a, a, a never-ending competition between different oligarchies, drawing on Italian elite theory once he abandoned Trotsky when he wrote him a really mean letter and said, I don't want to be your friend anymore. But 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 relatedly, I meant to mention this when we were talking about Chronicles, one of the most famous people to write for Chronicles at a time when he wasn't really being allowed to write anywhere else because he was too racist was Sam Francis. A Burnhamite. Yeah. So Sam Francis had a sort of renaissance on the right when Trump was running and when Trump was elected because people thought of, of Sam Francis as having kind of predicted Trump in the form of his advocacy for a sort of middle American revolt and the replacement of this bad globalist coastal elite with good rooted Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> Anglo-Saxon elites from the center of the country. And so I think that we are getting to some of both the genealogical intellectual material that informs this vision, which is not Marxist, not really about class struggle, but more about competition between a uh, nefarious, unrooted globalist elite and a rooted and loyal American elite, which they would prefer to replace the, the old one. I do love this thing, Gabe, of sort of, of really, I think you've, I think you've nailed them to rights that they're, they're technocratic liberals in their approach to the class question and to the approach to the, their approach to the labor question. They're too anxious about disorder, about the idea of working class power, which would actually be genuinely disrupted to the institutions that they otherwise love and believe must be stabilized in order for the present order to persist, to ever really permit of the, the wildness and danger and disorder of actually empowering the working class. And so therefore, they end up at the very best, you know, they'll be like, maybe we should, you know, implement this technocratic policy from EPI as a solution to the problem of inequality in this country. Yeah. And like the policy from EPI would be good. But I think you know, this is something that people who have never engaged in any kind of working class organization project do not understand because they can cite, you know, survey data or whatever, probably, right, that shows the various cultural and social dimensions on which working class people have more conservative views than like the PMC or something like that, right? And they, I'm sure that so they will respond to this episode with that kind of evidence. But again, from a Marxist perspective, the process of organization and struggle is transformative not only of the institutions of society and the relationships of employment, but of the participants themselves. And I think if you ever participate in any kind of organizing, which I guarantee you none of these people have ever done, then you see this really firsthand, right? That you actually, it's not, not possible to, for workers to kind of forge unity among themselves on a broad basis in a sustained way without undergoing personal change and transformation, and in particular, across lines of social difference and division. Uh, I mean, the classic version of the story is the formation of the CIO in this country, and this is the influence of the Communist Party on that project, that there, were, there was a layer of communist activists in every American workplace who would say to the white workers, you're not going to win the strike if you don't let the black workers into the union. And that conversation just happened again and again and again over the course of the 1930s and was what made the CIO what it was. I mean, there were then many limits on that and contradictions that resulted from that and so on. But some version of that process is always part 
of the assertion of working class power. And it's the reason why when that process goes really far and kind of reaches into a kind of revolutionary fervor, as it has never happened in this country, really, but, you know, has elsewhere, you start to see, like, gender start to transform, right? You start to see sexuality start to transform. You read Trotsky on everyday life in the immediate aftermath of the Russian Revolution, right? And this is all over it because you have had this experience of as far as that kind of process of working class organization empowerment has ever gone, and it just doesn't leave anything intact around it in terms of these kind of treasured institutions on the right. I think another thing that is symptomatically missing from the account of these right-wing labor-curious people we're talking about now is a much more honest and sophisticated account of what happened to the labor movement in this country, what broke labor's back. You sort of gave us some of that in, in a kind of really bird's eye view account of what happened in Pittsburgh. But in particular, I think one thing that's missing, that's a constitutive lacuna of <laughs> their, their ideology, is the role of the repressive apparatus in sort of mediating and facilitating the disempowerment of, of, of the working class in this country from a high point to a much lower point. And uh, I remember that you wrote this really excellent, as you tend to do, excellent essay in Sidecar in the NLR about the, the quote unquote strike wave of last fall. And I remember too that our friend Sarab shared it on Twitter and he said, great piece. <laughs> and I immediately replied to him, screenshotting a few of the passages, which were specifically about the way that punitive social policy played a role in eroding, you know, proletarian power in this country. And I said, did you agree with this part, too? I mean, these are people who have been railing against Black Lives Matter and are, are vociferously supportive of the police, of Border Patrol. Um, and in fact, they, they need to be because the social base of Trumpism is totally pervaded by the repressive industries, so to speak, of the state. But he didn't have a particularly good response to it. But I just wanted to read one of those passages from the piece and then get you to sort of talk about this other missing piece of the story the right tells about what happened to the lost utopian mid-century order. And this is this is the, the passage you write. Punitive social policy further eroded proletarian room for maneuver. After over a decade of state-level erosion of income support for the poor, Bill Clinton's welfare reform pushed millions into the bottom of the labor market and, as Melinda Cooper observes, granted fathers automatic custody rights to children regardless of prior relationship, in effect terrorizing poor mothers off the welfare rolls and into minimum wage work. If this were not enough, the apparatus of policing and imprisonment underwent its extreme metastasis in this period, not precisely what Samuelson imagined as the Chilean solution, but close enough. And that there is a reference to an earlier part of the piece where you talk about Paul Samuelson, as you described, the high priest of post-war neoclassical economics, who thought maybe that the stagflation problem of the 70s was only going to be solved at the point of a gun, as it was by Chilean neoliberalism. Um, and so that whole part of the story, which is about the prison, the police, these new punitive welfare policies, which uh, reach into the family, that is never a part of the story that the right tells about what happened to the working class in this country. I don't know why it's so hard for people to wrap their heads around the idea that mass incarceration is obviously, among other things, a labor market management system. But I don't know what totally. else you could possibly think it is. Yeah. What, what does it mean to put a bunch of people in this place where they are not 
creating value, or they may be in a little bit. But well, and what does it do to the people who aren't there but might end up there, right? And I think that's really the key from this perspective is the way that it raises the cost of potential unemployment much higher because unemployment becomes criminalized and therefore increases the bargaining power of the employer over the worker, right? Because the worker becomes more desperate to not become unemployed because becoming unemployed means that they're likely to go to jail, right? I mean, right, that's right, the kind of right. causal chain. Right. And, you know, obvi- the same is even more obviously true with welfare reform. It was part of its kind of explicit logic. But, you know, I think this kind of goes to, again, what your conception of class is and what your conception of the working class is. You know, I mean, I w- I, what I'm offering here, right, is a conception of a kind of set of contradictory and fragmentary kind of social relationships between capital and labor, which is different layers, which are kind of governed through different but related mechanisms. And if you have a kind of hypostatized or reified image of class is like this particular kind of guy who I like, right? <laughs> um, right that's like fundamentally not relational. It's not about yeah. the kind of employment relationship, you know, its varieties and the ways that it's governed and the ways that it is mediated through other institutions and so on. It's like a symbol, right? Or as Marx would call it, a fetish, you know, something that stands in for and obscures a larger set of relations. And well, I think on the one hand, it's sort of obvious why that would happen, right? In right-wing thought, which is that, as we've been saying, they're not actually interested, even the ones who avow it are not actually interested in class as a kind of relationship through which power might be generated from below to cause disruption. That's not actually what they want. And, you know, that has to do with race and with gender and ways that are obvious in the current discussion. But I also think there's sort of an interesting question that it raises, which is like, why did Saurabh tweet my piece? Why is it attractive to this segment of the right to pretend to be interested in Marxism? And there is even the kind of subpopulation of people who, like Angela Nagel would be an example of this, right? People who have self-identified as Marxists. And then when really pressed over years and years, will eventually say like, oh, okay, I'm not really, um, <laughs> you know, and when, when it's transparent often to their critic all along. And <laughs> the, like, the, the nature of that appeal, I think, is sort of puzzling and worth thinking about because yeah. I think it generates a lot of this confusion, right, that there are these people on the right who are engaged in what a Marxist, if you kind of like are steeped in that tradition, can recognize as like actually not what we're doing, but who present themselves as doing that for some weird set of reasons. (laughs) I can grope towards answers to that question. I mean, like there's obviously the, you know, the simple thing we've already alluded to, which is that if you sort of construct an idealized notion of the working class as a a sort of white male breadwinner, you can conceal what is basically a sort of nostalgia for a particular kind of racial and gendered hierarchy behind an advocacy for working class politics. But that's just so insipid that we can't account for all of the things that we're describing. But maybe we can arrive at some answers to that question by by going in a couple of other different directions. We've mentioned that one of the things that they are, that these right laborists are keen not to do is talk about how repressive systems were involved in the breaking of, of labor's power at its height in the second half of the 20th century. Another thing that they do not want to talk about at all is sort of the role of social reproduction. And one of the ways this manifests is that, I mean, among the people who are aligned with Compact now are these sort of self-understood reactionary feminists, people like Nina Power, uh, and I really don't understand exactly what her trajectory was. But I think another key thing 
that is always present in your work, and which, I mean, you are, I already read from a passage where you mentioned Melinda Cooper, which is so key in her work, is kind of, you know, we have this idea that there's a sort of mainstream idea that the Fordist family was sort of undermined by neoliberalism, including in its guise as a liberal feminism, you know, sort of liberation of women from, you know, the condition of being a housewife, breaking from the old patriarchy. And, you know, one of the things that Melinda Cooper's work is so good at, at suggesting is that, in fact, there's ways in which a socially conservative notion of the family actually facilitates neoliberal transformation. And for people like Amari, it's always got to be there's a grinding of social conservatism against the imperatives of neoliberalism, right? But Melinda Cooper's book, All in the Family, is so good at sort of describing the ways in which actually these things can work in tandem, which also just makes me wonder about the present moment. What is at work in the sort of nostalgia for a single breadwinner family, which of course can't be returned to in any kind of simple way. So it's a fantasy too, but I'm sort of interested in breaking that misapprehension apart too, Gabe, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Well, again, I think it goes back to like a fundamentally static understanding of class. You know, I think like if you have such a static understanding of class, then the grinding that you're describing in relation to Amari between the kind of social conservative life world that he imagines is the kind of permanent situation of (laughs) the working class, right? Like that is what it intrinsically wants sort of trans-historically, and, you know, the kind of grinding of neoliberalism against that, right, then, then that makes sense. But if you think of class as something that is dynamic and gets made and remade in kind of complex configurations, then that doesn't make any sense. And I think, you know, to kind of flesh out this sort of transition argument between Fordism and neoliberalism. Yeah. First of all, I think it's worth understanding the ways that the post-war Fordist family is itself a product of not just, totally. not just class struggle, like the working class wins all this power and then it gets the family that it wants, but also the limits on class struggle, the defeats that working class people yeah. and working class organizations endure even in the 30s and 40s, much less afterward, and the containment of their, of their movements that happens, especially with the onset of the Cold War. Landon Storrs' book, The Second Red Scare, is really good about this, how, at showing how McCarthyism purges feminist elements from across the kind of liberal state and, and, and trade union movement and so on. And like then, you know, this just manifests in policy in important ways. Like, I don't think everyone understands now the point that Alice Kessler-Harris made beautifully in her book, In Pursuit of Equity, that the social security system, the way it's set up to establish old age pensions for housewives, makes it more economical for most working class women to be a housewife than to get the kinds of jobs that were available to them. Because the formula was that you could accrue social security, either a percentage of your husband's wages or, you know, on your own separately, if you earned your own income as a wage worker. But just in raw numbers, the jobs available to you were like nurse's aide, waitress, secretary. You were likely to accrue more in Social Security through the housewife formula over the course of a marriage. Just one of many examples like this mm-hmm. of how, uh, you know, the post-war Fordist family is the creation of social policy and institutions that are themselves produced not by like working class triumph, right? But by, in fact, is like very ambiguous political outcome and, you know, in very significant part reaction against labor unions. So that then lays the groundwork for this transition in the 70s and 80s, which depends, like neoliberalism depends on having this kind of particular divided structure of the working class. It depends on it politically, right? So that when 
austerity begins to be imposed and anti-unionism accelerates. The working class is divided along lines of gender and also of race in similar ways. And, you know, the trade union movement is not really there to protect the weaker and more marginal elements of the labor market and itself has become kind of sclerotic. And also even economically, there's a story I tell in my book of a home health agency that's, you know, kind of staffing up and expanding in this period and kind of the, you know, an example of the larger expansion of the healthcare industry I'm talking about. And, you know, this manager says, we have this huge available labor supply of housewives who could be said to have been in training for many years for this <laughs> job. Um, that's almost a verbatim quote. Would have been good to quote in the Wages for Housework pamphlet. Right. And someone like Amari or any of these kind of figures on the right would describe that as the way that women's entry into the workplace is undermining somehow the kind of labor capital compact that has existed. But that's backwards, right? Rather, what's yes. happened is that the working class is already divided. And as is always true with working class division, you know, different segments of capital are able to operate that division to their advantage. Yeah, Gabe, I think one of the really brilliant things that your book does is show the way something like that mid-century nuclear American family that's idealized came about from kind of wrapping itself around the demands of this industrial work, the factory work, the steel mill work, the division of labor in that kind of family was based on that. And so, as always, the conservatives end up naturalizing what was constructed. And, right. and, and, and when the conditions changed that constructed that version of the family, the family changed too. But it's, it's, again, kind of getting back to that point that just blaming feminists or you know women wanting to work is kind of of a piece with that blaming the wrong elites that we've been talking about rather than drilling down into the, the reasons certain ways of doing family came into being in the first place. Right. I mean, you know, I try to spend a lot of time on the book, like taking really seriously what is the actual work involved in like being a housewife in a 1950s steel town. And there's just no way you could derive it like abstractly from like what blue collar people naturally want or something like that. Right. I mean, obviously, participants felt all kinds of ways about it. They felt love. They felt hate. They felt resentment. They felt joy. They felt millions of things as we all do about our families. But it doesn't follow in any way from any kind of static fetish of the family, right? I mean, one example I like to give is that I found lots of instances of women who would do their laundry at night because nights <laughs> like late in the night because laundry, it's a form of housework that you can do alone, right? It's not in response to someone else's immediate needs, like, for example, <laughs> cooking or childcare or whatever. I mean, even just that simple fact really doesn't fit into the kind of static picture that I think we tend to get from, from the populist right. That's one reason I, I started by talking about my own family. Like, when my mother was tending to me and my sister when my dad was working third trick, was that like her instinctive maternal uh, nature expressing itself or something demanded by the fact that my dad was working from midnight to 8 a.m.? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what that, you know, what the kind of conservative reading of these things tells us, again, is that they're not really interested in class inequality. It's, a, it's, it's an instrumentality for them to get at the things that they're really interested in, which is the institutionalization of different forms of hierarchy, of which class itself is one that they believe in. And I just feel like I need to say that again and again in this conversation, right? That like the static image of the working class and class relations in their kind of idealized form that we get from the nationalist right is one that is conceptualized and organized conceptually around a kind of naturalized image of the relationship between women and men, between parents and children, between black and white, and between worker and boss. Yeah. 
Okay, one thing I want to ask you about, it's a term we hear a lot these days, which is neoliberalism. I think neoliberalism figures very importantly in the story that the new right tells. I mean, you know, they've latched onto that as something to critique, especially to the extent you can portray neoliberalism as like the the ideology of the PMC or something like that. Liberal economics and libertine social life. Yes, something we, you know, you'll find in the pages of Compact. But Gabe, I was wondering if you could maybe just for our listeners, given the prominence of discourse about neoliberalism, what were you trying to do in your book in portraying that period in the 70s when stagflation happened, which was, as you put it, policymakers and, and economists were confounded to see inflation rise in tandem with unemployment two variables widely held to work at odds. So again, I, I, what I found was so helpful about this depiction of the 70s, this era we all kind of know is important, the kind of hinge in which a lot of people think something's changed, you know, not just the perversity of politicians, people just deciding to do something, but like a real dilemma materially in the, the available options given the inertia of you know the past however many decades of labor policy and patterns of unionization and so on and so forth. So could you talk about kind of neoliberalism and how you think of it and what you tried to do with it in your book as it relates to some of what we've been discussing? This is a great question, including because many times our listeners have said, could you guys just please give us a, a good working definition of neoliberalism, which of course is the, the holy <laughs> grail, it seems like on the left. But nonetheless, Gabe, we believe you can do it. So neoliberalism, I think it's important to see as having a few different definitions, which is probably the source of some amount of listener confusion about it. It names an ideology, right? So a kind of account of the relationships between markets and society, and a, even a particular kind of way of doing economics within that based on micro foundations, microeconomics, and kind of rational expectations and these kinds of ideas. And it also names a period of history, and even the kind of cultural experience of living within that period of history. So, you know, that's not necessarily the same thing as the ideology, right? The way that the ideology kind of comes to power doesn't mean that it's automatically instantiated exactly as envisioned in every sphere of life at every institution. And so the period of history, the neoliberal period, you then want to kind of understand the uneven and complicated ways that the ideology becomes yes. empowered yes. as it happens with any ideology, right? They never, they never, like we never live entirely inside anyone's ideology. And, you know, I think in my book, what I try to do and that you guys were, were kind of alluding to is to try to think about neoliberalism also as a kind of solution for a set of structural problems in capitalism. Yes. So it's worth noting, you started with stagflation. Stagflation actually first appears, I talk about this in the book, it first appears in the late 50s, but only briefly. So there's this moment uh -huh. in the late 50s when unemployment is rising and inflation is rising at the same time. And everyone is like, God, that's odd. That's not supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah, uh, what the hell? <laughs> and, and then it kind of it, it passes pretty quickly. It's the, they don't need to think anymore about it. You know, it just like was a weird aberration. Good thing that's behind us. <laughs> right. Uh, but in retrospect, I think we can see it as a kind of harbinger of the structural contradictions of capitalism in the 70s, which are very, very complicated and very heavily debated. And to be honest, my book doesn't try to really resolve that part of the debate about sure. what caused the kind of structural economic crisis of the 1970s and its particular manifestation ultimately in deindustrialization. And there are people who say that it's about the kind of rise of global industrial economic competition after the reindustrialization of you know, Germany and Japan in particular. There are people who say it's about rising labor costs that have to do with both trade union power and welfare state expansion. There are people who emphasize the kind of monetary and financial side 
Obviously, there's the oil shock. There's all kinds of factors. But I think the important question for us here is, was there a solution to all of these kind of macroeconomic problems other than neoliberalism? And in what ways was neoliberalism a solution? So to the first, you know, I often have argued and talked with friends for years about, you know, was there a left exit from the 70s? And what, what would that have looked like? I and mean, we were just kind of asking Michael Kazin about that when we were talking about his history of the Democratic Party. Like, you know, could Democrats, could liberals have the left done something different? Because it, it, it does seem like that's such an important fulcrum. And, and often the way we talk about it, it is kind of like, well, people just decided to do this. <laughs> right. I mean, so the kind of neoliberal account, which is in a certain sense what happens, right, is that the institutions of Keynesianism, the welfare state, the trade unions are too powerful and have to get zapped, right? Uh, and the Fed, you know, this, I mean, this happens in many ways, but the most sort of famous is the Federal Reserve under Paul Volcker, who's appointed by Carter, deliberately induces a very steep recession in the early 1980s, which, you know, throws huge numbers of industrial workers in particular into unemployment and causes the kind of final cycle of shutdown for a lot of American heavy industry. And Carter says, you know, in testimony on Capitol Hill, the standard of living of a lot of Americans is going to have to fall. Terrible politician, in addition to everything else that's wrong with him. Right. <laughs> but I think, you know, from, from a Marxist perspective, you have to say, well, okay, so there is some structural problem that capital is experiencing that is making it more difficult mm -hmm. for it to accumulate. And he's saying, mm -hmm. here's how capital can solve this problem for itself. And if you want to say something else could have happened, you have to have either a different story about how capital could have solved this problem for itself or a story about how capital can be suppressed so it's not the thing making decisions, right? Right. Uh, yes. And it seems to me like that's the left exit, right? That, and that is foreclosed in the 70s exactly by these divisions of gender and race and sexuality within the labor movement and that then fragment the Democratic Party itself and make it not able to kind of be a force of resistance and alternative to, the, to this path. One of the other punching bags of the populist new right, besides neoliberalism, is one that is also sometimes a punching bag on the left, which is the professional managerial class. Now, there's a little bit of sort of conceptual... Slippage. So yeah, slippage or, con or mixing of sort of conceptual or intellectual genealogies here because the managerial class, which was so important to James Burnham's work, is not exactly the same thing as the professional managerial class, which is uh, most memorably for the left defined by uh, Barbara Ehrenreich and John Ehrenreich. So those are not exactly the same thing, but actually I think it is interesting the way in which the right kind of conflates them. And so the important thing for the right is that this is getting back to woke capital. So for the right, woke capital is not something really that capitalists do of their own accord. It's actually usually in the more sophisticated accounts of it. It's something that the managers, the sort of middle strata of these corporations, which they will often actually name as the professional managerial class, these sort of highly educated, youngish people who end up in positions of relative influence within these bureaucracies are able to use some kind of like moral blackmail to convince these more or less typical bourgeois business owners and um, CEOs to engage in woke politics and in, in, in sort of a, a progressive identity politics. And so this is the way in which the right demonizes the PMC. But I, I think, Gabe, some of my favorite work of yours has been about sort of engaging with Barbara and John Ehrenreich's concept of the PMC and, and sort of trying to 
figure out <laughs> and sort of mediate a lot on long going debate on the left about whether there can be an alliance between the PMC and the rest of the working class in achieving some kind of hegemonic class struggle of the sort that we would like to see in this country. Um, you wrote memorably about this with the sort of synecdoches of the Bernie campaign and the Warren campaign in N plus one a few years ago. And it, it it's one of the debates that seems to never die. But given that with the right, they are demonizing something that they are calling the managerial class and which is conflated with people who might be considered PMC and the fact that we're having this debate on the left. This is another place where I feel like the right laborists feel like maybe they are engaging with a debate on the left and sort of that they can kind of like show in the way that they like to do a kind of Marxist drag that we're, we're taking a size in this leftist debate against the managers, against the, against the professionals who are the source of this woke ideology, which undermines the basis for real class politics. And, and when, when certain kinds of people on the left describe the problem with the PMC, they can basically sound like they're saying the same thing. So Gabe, Solve that knotted uh, problem for us now. Go ahead, please. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, I think actually we already have the resources within the conversation we've had to solve this problem, which is do you think of class as something static or, or a dynamic system of relationships? And if you think of it as a dynamic system of relationships, or as I say in that N plus one piece, a set of processes rather than a set of identities and statuses, you're going to get off on a much better foot to understand this because Thinking about the Ehrenreichs concept of the, of the PMC, maybe I'll summarize it really briefly. Yeah. The Ehrenreichs were looking back on the failure of the new left. From the, they were looking back from the late 70s and saying, how can we understand, in particular, the non-alliance of the student movement and the, uh, and the working class, which we've historically thought of as the kind of agent of social transformation? And the answer has to do with the kind of specific form taken by the middle class in the 20th century as it was created by the capitalist class organizing itself on an increasingly larger corporate scale, right? Giant firms, huge institutions, huge bureaucracies, yeah. large universities called forth a new middle layer of professionals and managers to kind of superintend the process of production, to improve the technology, and to engage the kind of processes of social control that follow from that. And this 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 here does actually track with Burnham's account. Yeah, and they they know that, right? They're they're tuned into that. The difference then they say is that this class is a contradictory position because on the one hand, it's been kind of hired to do this social control function, but on the other hand, they are themselves also hired, right? They are also employees right. and they're subject to capitalist discipline in the way that all employed people are subject to capitalist discipline. The influence of Harry Braverman, the kind of classic Marxist theorist of de-skilling in the 1970s, is an extremely underrated Hmm. point in understanding the Ehrenreich's position. Barbara Ehrenreich gave the eulogy at Harry Braverman's funeral. And Braverman, if you read his classic book, Labor and Monopoly Capital, he basically the thing that he shows is that all wage labor is subject structurally, necessarily to de-skilling pressures over the course of the history of capitalism. And he concludes the book by turning to white collar work and showing how it's proceeding there too. Huh. So their point is that that creates a political possibility. The new left attempted to capture, failed to capture, but which remains open, right. which is the alignment of the professional class. And you know the inclusion of managerial there is complicated, and I think is a source of a lot of the problems here. But it's alignment with the working class, and ultimately 
the sort of destruction of the division of mental and manual labor. Yeah. Right. That's the kind of revolutionary horizon of that point of view. Right. I mean, certainly the one that now DSAers and people who are invested in the Bernie campaign would have tried to affect because a lot of the sort of activist cadre of the Bernie campaign, as well as of DSA, are white collar professionals of some sort. Right. Or at least sort of, you know, educated to be so, even if they are no longer able to get the jobs that they were supposed to get from that education. But certainly the idea that there is a alliance between mental and manual labor that's obvious and can be mobilized is very important to the contemporary left. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's something that you can pretend that it doesn't have that basis. And you can just say, sort of like say, oh, it's just like we're the working class, which the Aaron Reichs explicitly counsel against because their point is that this alliance won't happen automatically. There are there are real obstacles to it. And I think, again, we can see that in our own moment, right? There oh, are yeah. obstacles. But that, that also, those obstacles shouldn't be taken as, you know, insurmountable, static kind of forces either. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's the usefulness of the idea. Basically, what I think of as a lot of the abuses or misuses of it ultimately come from basically static views of class, as, I, as I'm saying, right? Like Identity category. Exactly. Because like the right's position on woke capital and on sort of the falseness of trying to surmount that division is that like there's something called the working class and they're all socially conservative lunch pail white guys who don't want any of your woke <laughs> bullshit, you highly educated professionals, right? And these are two identities which when they encounter each other, they're always oil and water. Right. And I think actually we can even look at struggles and movements in our own moment and see clearly the possibilities here. I mean, the Starbucks unionization campaign you know, on one hand, this is like low-wage food service work, and in that sense, it's very hard to dispute economically. It's a yeah. kind of obvious working-class kind of struggle, but it's also kind of clear from what we know that the fact that Starbucks is often a kind of site of employment for... De-skilled PMCs? Yeah, artists who are trying to, you know, figure out what to do. Art history majors, yeah, English I mean, majors. Like we're joking, <laughs> but like, it's, that, that's a real phenomenon. I don't think it's the majority yes. of the workforce, if I had to guess, but I think it's, that has been an important component of this campaign, at least in its origin in Buffalo. I don't know how true that is shot by shot, and it might well be true kind of in an ongoing way. And even the Amazon story, you know, which mm -hmm. in some regards is a kind of more classic... I mean, warehouses were part of like the organizing of the 30s, too, in an important way. Yeah. But even there, I think the situation of the Amazon labor union within the kind of broader New York left yeah. was key for it, actually. And that's not to downplay yeah. the you know, initiative and success and ingenuity and all of that of the workers themselves who did something extremely improbable. But they had resources to draw on in doing that on the broader New York PMC left that I actually think were quite important for them. And, I, and from what I understand, many of them would agree with that. I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's like self-identified communists on the organizing committee who like salted at the warehouse. Or you could think about how like friend of all of ours, Alex Press, like has been covering this story and like elevating Chris Smalls, you know, since he first got fired, basically at the beginning of the pandemic. Classic PMC writer, Alex Press. <laughs> and none of that takes away from their accomplishment, right? It's just like it illustrates the possibilities for actually expanding the labor movement. Right. Maybe we've answered it. But I think the desire of people on the right who are, you know, preoccupied with the idea of, a, of woke capital, they, they very much want to suggest that because working classness is an identity category <laughs> constituted by a very particular set of cultural and social priors, that certain kinds of radical ideas or progressive ideas about race and gender and sexuality are necessarily corrosive 
to the kind of class politics that they think need to happen. And, and, and I think, I think we've already sort of explained why that is innovation, which ultimately serves the ends of capital. But yeah, I mean, just to kind of put a fine point on it, have you ever heard a satisfying account of how it can be that these two populist nationalist candidates, masters and Vance in Arizona and Ohio are the creatures of Peter Thiel. And that's somehow compatible with the critique of capital more broadly. I mean, that seems like insane to me <laughs> to say nothing of the fact that just yesterday, Jeff Bezos was tweeting his kind of like enthusiasm for that Vanity Fair article about this kind of populist nationalist right. Yes. So like, I look forward to hearing how they incorporate Jeff Bezos onto the side of the workers against woke capital. I mean, Van- Vance and Masters, it's almost too easy, but they are literally their number one you know, sort of for them, they, these are the guys who represent the, the future of this kind of politics. And they literally are Teal's creations. They're people they're who- They're literally capitalist executives. They're VCs. They're literally capitalist. <laughs> capitalist is in the name of their job. <laughs> but again, it just goes back to this point that these people are not talking about a capital labor conflict. That's not what they're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. That's a conflict they want to resolve. Right. The word compact is the name of the fucking magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Gabe, I have one last question for you, and maybe we'll close out. Uh, But I want to kind of bring it back to where we started, which is my uh, hometown in central Pennsylvania, in western Pennsylvania. You know, Sam mentioned your great uh, N plus one essay, We we live live in a society. society. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, and since we were just talking about Masters and Vance and and that whole crowd, you know, Trump won the county I grew up in. He got 71 or 72 percent of the vote in Blair County in 2020. Now, where I grew up, it's not a a formal steel town, but it is was closely related. The fortunes of where I grew up was intimately related to Pittsburgh because it was a railroad town. And coal, I would think also. And coal, yes. I mean, there's a railroad museum in Altoona. When I grew up, there was all these stories of, you know, like Altoona was number three on Hitler's list to bomb in America because it was such an important rail station, like from, (laughs) you know, the steel mills in Pittsburgh to destinations on the East Coast. So kind of everything we've talked about, uh, the nature of deindustrialization, the rise of neoliberalism, the attendant issues that those things raise, what does it say that Trump has done so well in a lot of these Rust Belt places that have experienced the dynamics we've been talking about this entire conversation and, you know, that you describe so, so well in your book. That to me is, you know, it's, it's kind of the background plausibility to all that we've been talking about, especially the, the ostensibly pro-labor elements on the right now, right? This is a post-Trump phenomenon. And I, I just thought that as I was reading your book, it was so great in so many ways, but it also raised questions to me just about, okay, th- reading this from the vantage point of now, knowing what we know, what was going on? Why were these areas so receptive to the Trump message? Totally. I mean, I'm glad you asked because I think you're right that it is the kind of basis for this whole phenomenon. It has precursors, right? There was like the sure. the kind of Raihan Salam, Ross Douthat kind of work, vision of working class conservatism. And Sam's t- Club Republicanism. Exactly, <laughs> right. And there's, there's you know, obviously formations like Pat Buchanan and so on. So it's not without antecedents. But you're totally right, I think, that the kind of radicalization of this vision follows t- Trump's success in 2016 or its imagined radicalization. And, you know, I think it's important to say a couple of things. One, although I find it to be 
a totally intellectually bad faith and bankrupt enterprise from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. That's true of a lot of phenomena in American politics. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, Trump does have a working class base in certain ways, in certain yeah. places. That's important and it's real. Now, I, th- I don't think what that should be understood as is the kind of like true interest of the working class expressing itself against woke capital and neoliberalism in any kind of mm-hmm. in any kind of linear way. I think there's a couple of things we have to take into account to understand it. One is the transformation of the Democratic Party since yes. the 1970s, at least, which has been itself produced by deindustrialization, but then that got politically contested inside the party and the kind of triumph of the right wing of the party tried to regraft the Democratic Party onto a kind of middle class base with some success, obviously, and allowed the withering of all of the mediating institutions, most significantly labor unions, to proceed such that the things that organize American life and American society socially and then allow it allow that organization to be politicized in class terms fell away. And the things that remain meaningful as sort of forms of social connection and social binding are churches, right? And that's obviously a big one. In relationships of like residentiality and neighborhood, which are connected to churches and are connected also to schools and things like PTAs, you know, and school boards, which are obviously important in our current moment. And, you know, a whole set of institutions that proved easier for the right to politicize, I think, than anything that the left had going in these kinds of places. So one argument I'm trying to make throughout our whole discussion today and in my work in general is that class relations don't automatically politicize in any kind of way, right? It's, yeah. always a, it's always a project to turn the relations of class into a politics. It's a project on all sides. So we need to look, anytime anyone's talking about doing that, at what relations they're trying to politicize in what way. And basically, the institutions that articulated class relations, you know, relations of lateral solidarity and vertical antagonism fell apart. And there were institutions that were positioned instead to help the politicization of working class people in other forms. And I think that's the key distinction is like institutions that are mediating kind of working class conservatism in rural and post-industrial America, although their social basis is working class and working class experience, they're taking that social world and turning it into a politics that resubordinates that working class to a certain kind of national capital, right, which is represented by someone like Thiel or someone like Trump. And in that sense, it's a bid to establish a kind of hegemonic block, which is always a cross-class endeavor, led by a particular fragment of a capitalist class. Yeah. And, you know, Gabe, I mean, you mentioned the changes in the Democratic Party. I have to say it was really an eye-opener for me when Donald Trump was campaigning for president and showed up at the Altoona Convention Center and said, NAFTA screwed all of you. In this railroad town where, like, the population of Altoona has declined in a certain way. You know, the railroad's not what it was. There's still some union jobs at the railroad shop in Altoona, but, you know, they're dwindling. There was something about that. It was the first time I could remember a politician, national politician, showing up in that way and saying that kind of thing to that audience. Yeah. yeah but you know who said that kind of thing long before? It was like Jesse Jackson. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And Barack Obama in 2008. Well, that's it, right? So it's all, I mean, it always gets cynically invoked by people who have no intention of doing anything about it, uh, of which Trump is one, right? I mean, yeah. like, that's the other thing. It's, <laughs> it's not like there is a serious vision of redistribution here. And I know I keep saying this, but totally. like, there, there just isn't one. 
right? And there never has been, and there never will be from these people. I mean, even if you imagined Orrin Cass's program got implemented, it, it, you know, you can't imagine a kind of the large scale remaking of like power relations between the classes. He's very clear that that's not what he's intending. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, all the American Compass stuff, their big project was called A Better Bargain and uh, Greater Voice for Workers, A Seat at the Table is their big project. We see you, we hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're always accusing World Capital of doing that. Right? But like, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> totally, yes. So, I mean, I, I agree with everything you guys are saying, and I, but I, I think it's become a major preoccupation of mine and why I was so compelled by rereading that piece, Gabe, which is, I mean, I just wrote this piece for my New York Magazine periodic column about sort of movement energy on the right. And I think one of the things that's so correct about your piece, which is also sort of in conversation with the sort of the whole fascism question, and, you know, you're engaged with Dylan Riley, and we talked about it, me and Matt talked about it when we did our fascism episode, we talked about your piece. But I do think that there is often probably a impulse to underestimate the existence of an actual form of sociality on the right, which constitutes the Trump base. And that for leftists, sometimes it is because, as you point out, that we have this idea of neoliberalism as succeeding so fundamentally in atomizing working class life that we assume that there can't be sufficient pre-existing civic bonds and sort of even even sort of political economic relationships in sufficient sort of proximity to form the social base for something like Trumpism. And your piece really does show that that's not entirely right. And the sort of inheritance, of course, of bad things about history form the sort of rudiments of that of that social base, including things like the prison system, police and border guards. I mean, especially when we look to sort of the Latino vote along the border for Trump, like these people often work either in proximity to or for the militarized border apparatus. So look, that's that, that but that's actually like a a place where people work and interact with each other and can form the sorts of bonds that are the rudiments of solidarity, which can be mobilized for <laughs> political ends we find noxious or not. And that's all there. I mean, I, I found rereading your piece two moments I want to read, which I, because I found them so portentous given that this piece came out in December 2020. One, you write, even the QAnon cult, repellent as it is, makes perfect sense as an online salon where millions of individuals frantically cooperate to give the world some kind of coherent shape. Their motto, where we go one, we go all, is only a portentous and insane version of an injury to one is an injury to all. The QAnon, which we can think of as sort of the the er example of sort of just online misinformation, people sitting at home alone on their computers imbibing this insanity, actually does have a sort of solidaristic impulse and does convene people in a way that helps them form bonds with each other and make sense of the world around them. The other part that I found even more disturbing, arriving just a little under a month before January 6th, is, quote, commenting on a Facebook post or catching COVID-19 in a regional arena while Don Jr. vibes at the podium is hardly equivalent to serving as a secretary of the PTA or a shop steward in a union. In truth, where Q followers go one, they only go some. But even a diminished sociality still amounts to a form of connection sufficient to create ideology and, on occasion, action. 
And if we remember what action people organized and bonded together, not insignificantly by QAnon and other kinds of sociality, were about to do, that is a very wise insight. And even the mention of PTAs, given how effectively politicized the school in the neighborhood and in the sort of network of families, of right-wing families, has become, how important that has become for this whole groomer moral panic. I think you you are pointing to the fact that like while people are atomized, they are also still organized <laughs> in certain ways. And it's and it's it's still possible for people to work in concert through those pre existing bonds to do good or ill from our sort of political or moral perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate you saying all that. I think, um, you know, it goes back, I think, to a, like a fundamental element for me of Marxism and, and thinking about the intervention that Marx himself was making in his debates with like 19th century liberalism. Fundamental to Marx's project is the idea that the increasingly complex social division of labor described by someone like Adam Smith, right? Like, you know, the butcher and the baker and whatever, they don't, they don't do things out of philanthropy, but they rather they do it in their own interest. And, you know, the more this principle is kind of ramified across society, the, you know, the more well-being everyone has and so on. Marx's point is that, I mean, this is like core to what he's doing in Capital. That process of the refinement of the division of labor brings the proletariat, not just of the country, but of the world, into a new kind of social connection to one another, right? That there is a kind of dialectic in capitalism of growing interdependency socially, which is constantly being kind of re-encased and re-enclosed and redivided by the structure of property ownership. And, you know, from my perspective, it's important to say that, you know, in this discussion here, again, I mean, the reason that I think like labor history and thinking about workers and class is a good answer to these problems that we're facing from the right is because it points us toward also the possibility of identifying other forms of sociality on which we might base the struggle to preserve and extend democracy. And that's ultimately what my book is trying to do, actually, is to say the care economy is that. Yes. And it you know it brings together relations of interdependency on a growing scale that can be politicized for solidaristic ends. But I do think that that's how we need to be thinking about like what we are, where is there organization in society and where could there be organization and what are the scary forms of organization that we have to deal with and what are the kinds that we would want to build. That so much resonated with my own experiences, Gabe. I mean, the kind of place where I grew up, you know, it's the Robert Putnam, you know, bowling alone. It was the kind of place there were bowling leagues and Elks clubs and VFWs and things like that that are now much diminished, but what remains is the churches. <laughs> and I can say in my own family, you know, my parents, the church is the center of a lot of their life. And also in terms of political information, sometimes when they tell me something that like I know isn't quite right or isn't true, I wonder where did they get that? And I have a suspicion. <laughs> you know, I was talking to um, Danny uh, Schlossman the other day for that piece and he made this point, which is so obvious, but uh, hadn't actually been articulated to me this way. Like even Facebook, which we think of as sort of this thing that replaces these forms of sociality that might have existed in the past where people actually meet in person and whatever. But Facebook is based on friends. <laughs> like there is, there is, you, you are friends. Obviously you can meet strangers on Facebook and you do, especially if you get you know, involved in some kind of QAnon thing. But the most of the way that quote-unquote misinformation travels 
on Facebook is through people who already know each other from their home, their family, from their work, from their high school. And so by, by, by definition, because they're friends, it means that it's actually based usually, normally, on a form of sociality that pre-exists the relationship on Facebook. Right. And so trust also can flow through it in a different kind of way. Yes. Yes. And largely that has cashed out to the advantage of the right. But not only, I mean, like the Red for Ed strikes in 2018 were organized on Facebook. Yeah. And the, a, lot, a lot of the BLM stuff has always been organized yeah, on true. Facebook. That's true. Well, I think that's probably a good place to stop. Thanks so much, Gabe. This was really excellent. And as I've said, uh, Throughout this conversation, your book was really incredible, and it's available at fine bookstores everywhere. The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry, and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. Gabe Winant, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Gabe.